In today's episode, we open our Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 11. In the springtime, when kings usually go to war, David stayed behind in Jerusalem while his army fought the Ammonites. One night, he saw a beautiful woman bathing on a rooftop and desired her, and he found out who she was, who she was the wife of, and he sent for her, slept with her. She became pregnant. David makes a plan to hide what he's done, but will it succeed? How far will he go to hide his adultery? And how will God respond? Good morning and blessed Pentecost. Today is Monday, June 26th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thy Strong Word is brought to you in part by a generous contribution from the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. LHF produces a variety of Lutheran resources in foreign languages, and you can learn more about all their translating and publishing work and how they can help your ministry on their website at lhfmissions.org. Well, this morning, to dive into 2 Samuel chapter 11 with David and Bathsheba, please join me in welcoming my guest. It's the Reverend Dan Eddy, pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Beloit, Wisconsin. Good morning, Pastor Eddy, and welcome back to Thy Strong Word. Hey, it's good to be back, Reverend Boo. Love it. Well, I'm excited to have you on. Uh, this is an interesting topic because we have David here, the man after God's own heart, uh, showing us that he, too, is a poor, miserable sinner, right? He's the type of Christ, but he's not the Christ. Uh, and this is one of the most famous, uh, how can I say it, uh, exploits of David or <laughs> public sins of David. Anyway, it's a pretty big deal. Um, it's going to go for a couple chapters, but we're going to get started with the actual offense today, and that is David and Bathsheba. Absolutely. Pride cometh before the fall, right? <laughs> and oh, we're seeing that here that even David, with all his pride and power, how Satan uses that to, to convince David that he's better than he really is and to ignore the blessings that God has given him. Yeah, absolutely. And we are all, of course, uh, susceptible to those types of things. We're not all kings, but we certainly can get caught up in our own selves and in our own perceived power and uh, and make some really bad mistakes. And that's what David does today. Uh, before we this start, this is definitely our... a teachable moment for us, no doubt. <laughs> it, it is, and I think we're gonna we're going to uh, find that out as we go through. It, it connects us to David a little bit. Uh, but you know what? Before we dive in any more, I'm eager to get started. But would you? start off our time together with a prayer. Yes. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come to you this day that we may understand the Father's will as spoken by the Son, empowered by the Holy Spirit. So with that, dear Lord, let us be quick to listen to your word this day, slow to speak when it comes to revealing your wisdom, but to do it in a way that brings love and compassion so that we may understand better your law to show us our sin and better appreciate the gospel that shows us our Savior. Let this text help us do that to edify and strengthen our faith this day. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, so set the scene a little bit for us. You know, we're going to begin our chapter today with the words, in the springtime of the year, the time when kings go to battle. Uh, but, you know, the battles seem to be never-ending for the people of Israel. Uh, again, set the stage for us. Who are they in the middle of fighting? The Amorites here is what's going on. And I think the broader context here is this kingdom has been running well, pretty well for the last 25 years. I mean, David has expanded the borders. The, the Israelites are living in prosperity. Uh, there have been a number of enemies that have been defeated. Their borders are as wide and as long and as wide as there ever have been. You know, during this time, David has shown compassion to the household of Jonathan. Um, he has been reminded of the bigger covenant that God has with his people uh, even in 2 Samuel 5, the Lord said, You shall be a shepherd of my people Israel. You shall be a prince over Israel. And in verse 10, And David became greater and greater for the Lord. The Lord Almighty, the Lord of hosts, 
was with him. So things have been going really good. But for some strange reason now, I don't know if David was very proud of his accomplishments and and didn't think he needed to do all the things he did before. But chapter 11 here shows a shift in the way that he looks at his vocation as king and his role as uh, God's child that God has called him to. And so instead of being the warrior that goes out and leads his forces, he's delegated that to Joab. And so mistake number one right there, he remains back in the palace. And how do the Methodists say it? Idle hands make the devil's workshop or something like that. You probably know that phrase. but Yeah, and that's what's going on here as we will proceed into this chapter. Well, let let us proceed. We're going to read the first five verses of chapter 11. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanliness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Okay, so uh, here we have a, a pretty interesting situation. Um, As you already alluded to, David, when kings are going out to battle traditionally, right, the the muddy season has gone away, spring has come, it's it's more you're able to go out and fight your enemies, but he doesn't. He sends Joab, he sends all of Israel, but he remains at home. So just even starting there, David seems to be maybe not exactly acting like a king should act. Yes, maybe he thought he was long in the tooth. Um, it's arguable that he's probably in his fifties at this point, And maybe he feels like, I don't feel like going out and fighting the battles. I've earned the right to stay home and let my warriors delegate it to my warriors to do that. Um, so this really brings up some very interesting things. Uh, this means that Bathsheba youngest, maybe 15, maybe 30 years old, somewhere in here. In any event, we're looking at uh, somebody that's at least 20 years, maybe 25, 30 years younger than David, you know? Um, So that's your first indication of just kind of lust going on here. And then it's interesting, the word for uh, beautiful or very beautiful, uh, there, there's some, some discussion that I read in some commentaries. The word used here is, I think it's pronounced Marais, which means very good in appearance, as opposed to Yapa, which was used to describe Abigail back in 1 Samuel 25, uh, where the beauty is discerning and there's wisdom there mixed in with the looks. And so you're kind of getting a um, maybe a shallowness on David's part. Uh, that just strictly at a very base lust level that he's uh, uh, being aroused by this woman. So you can just see where uh, the rat hole is now just starting to uh, dig itself, so to speak, here. Well, David is lazying around his house while his men are at war. He's enjoying the the luxuries of what it is to be king, regardless of his age, right? And and he he's he's curious. He's out. Not that he can't go out whenever he wants, but, you know, she, here is Bathsheba, and she is bathing in her own courtyard. It's at night or in the evening, um, and so David is out on his roof when he really should have been anywhere else. You said the idle hands are the devil's workshop, and, and that's what's happening. His curiosity gets him. He starts peering where he shouldn't be peering. Sin number I, one, he didn't look away. 
You know, that, exactly? you know, it's uh, it's not as though he was looking for a naked woman, but he saw yeah. one. And instead of looking away, he was already committing adultery in his heart, as Jesus talks about in Matthew 12, 527, which reminds me of when Jimmy Carter was uh, running for president in 1976. I was only 11 years old, but they asked the uh, now the former president. But when he was running, the governor of Georgia, they said, have you have you ever committed adultery? And he said, yes, I have in, in my heart. So here's David committing adultery already in his heart, even before uh, he sent to have her come to his bed. You know, speaking uh, politically, I know that uh, Mike Pence got a lot of uh, ridicule in the media when he talked about the strict ways that he keeps himself from, uh, I guess, uh, thinking lustfully after someone else, including not not uh, going out with women who aren't his wife and stuff. And, you know, everybody made fun of him basically like, well, here's a guy who can't control himself. You know, politics aside, there is a responsibility upon the man to not give in to these temptations. And that includes David. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I bring that up because some people like to try to cast Bathsheba off as being culpable in this in some way. Because, you know, she's the one—I guess what I've heard, and I absolutely do not agree with it, what I've heard is, well, here's this woman, and she's bathing on a roof where people can see her. That's not exactly accurate. I mean, she's in a courtyard, not on a roof. It's her own courtyard, so if you're on the ground, you know, people couldn't be able to see in where you are. only reason David could see is because he's high atop his palace. And then secondly— He's about um, 50 feet up. It's a flat roof. Right. Uh, some archaeologists say this is almost like his own patio or room uh, here. So he, he could look over the, the city of Jerusalem quite easily. Right. And so she's not—I guess what I'm saying is she's not putting on a show for anyone, as I have literally heard. It's almost like people want to try to uh, ease David's culpability by giving some to Bathsheba. And I don't, I don't think that's—I don't think that's fair— and secondly, I think she's also fulfilling God's law. She's being faithful because she's following the law, probably coming after her uh, menses cycle, that she has to uh, ritually bathe herself, and, and that's what she's doing. I mean, we're told in verse 4, in parentheses, she'd been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Yes, and when you look back at uh, the verses here in Leviticus 15, 19 to 28, it's pretty elaborate on what parts of your house are considered unclean. So, I mean, you've got anywhere she sat, anywhere she lay, um, you know, and so I'm sure she's purifying herself. I don't know if she's done this after she's purified her house, uh, if there was something involved with that, but it, it kind of somewhat logically makes sense that she would be outside doing this um, so that she could honor uh, the ceremonial law that God had laid out. And she is the daughter of one of, you know, David's own mighty men, the Bible would say, and the, and the wife of Uriah, another soldier. And so a married woman whose husband is off fighting for, for David in the battlefield, um, in every way she was off limits to him, you know, by God's law, by human decency. Uh, but as we see— He probably thought, though, I'm the king. It's well, good to be the king, and I'm going to do what I want to here— but you are absolutely right. Um, that didn't mean that he could do whatever he wanted to do. Well, that and that brings up the next part about her response. You know, verse 4, David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Um, so there have been people who, again, for some strange reason, want to try to find some culpability in Bathsheba, say, well, she should have refused. But... Brother, would she have been able to do that? What what could well, have been the consequences? David has is a has a reputation for being a violent man. I mean, if you go back, this is why God didn't want him to build the temple. You know, thanks, but no thanks, Dave. I'm going to leave it to your predator, uh, your successor. Excuse me, and uh, because you're a violent man, so you didn't want to mess around with this guy. He's in a position of power. I mean, this is the perfect me too situation, you know, the Me Too movement that uh, started the late in the last decade, uh, a man of power, uh, you know, in a many ways forcing himself on this woman. Yeah, I mean, 
obviously she could not have said no reasonably without expecting, even if it weren't King David, just kings in general, you just don't say no to them, uh, for better or for worse, in this case, of course, a for worse. So she goes back home, and obviously a lot of time, at least nine months, passes between verse 4 and verse 5, because then the woman conceived, and she goes and she, she sends message to David, I am pregnant. Um, what well, do you this think would be David's this would be about were? a month later, wouldn't it? When she didn't have her her cycle, her menstruation cycle, absolutely. Um, it and then been, she it would have been, okay, right. something's going on here. She somehow we're not told how she knew, but she knew that she was pregnant. I mean, I mean, just because this was uh, you know about a thousand years before the birth of Jesus, or you know, a little less than three thousand years ago, didn't mean that we, women didn't necessarily need to go to the uh, drugstore to get a pregnancy test to know that they were pregnant. No, you're and, absolutely right. I did, I certainly didn't think that she had to wait till she had the baby to figure out she was pregnant. You're right. We don't have any scripture references that point to the um, the sin of Bathsheba. In fact, what's interesting is in the genealogy of Jesus, as recorded in Matthew chapter one, Solomon when they talk about who his mother is, uses the term wife of Uriah. So you could kind of infer from this that uh, that she is not given the blame here for what is going on. Right, and she's not. I mean, and I think that's really clear. It's just this unusual, just over history. Like, for instance, when she is ritually cleansing herself, uh, the occasion for David looking upon her, you know, it could be for uh, a, after a menses cycle. It also is prescribed when people were um, had some sort of illicit sexual intercourse. So some people have speculated that, oh, she must be some sort of prostitute or she's already stepping out on her husband, which is why she was eager to be with the king. None of that is in the scripture. And, and so because it's out there in the ether, I thought it was worth us addressing that in this case, at least by my estimation and reading, Bathsheba doesn't doesn't have the the same culpability as David does. This is this is David's fault. David is the one who has to take some responsibility for what's going on. And my guess is that if she was involved in the way that that you have described, that we would have uh, maybe some dialogue where she's saying, "Well, how are we going to cover this up?" or or "What's going to happen when my husband finds out?" Uh, you would think. That the that the seer that put together the Second Samuel here would have uh, included something in there to give us an indication, but it's kind of implied here that David was like, you know, I'm going to take care of this, and he wasn't plotting with her the death of her own husband. I don't think she would want to go along with that either. So the cover up starts. Yeah, agreed. So let's keep on reading, and, well, let's see how the cover-up goes, starting with verse 6. So David sent word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and did not go down to his house. And when they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live, as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Well, remain here today also, and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and David invited him, and he ate in his presence, and he drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of the Lord, but he did not go down to his house. What a what an amazing juxtaposition. I mean, besides just sort of the irony of this cover-up plan not working, here we see Uriah being more concerned about uniting himself with the suffering of the ark and the soldiers 
than even David, who's meanwhile lounging in his own couches and having relations with other people's wives. A true patriot, there is no doubt. Also, Second uh, Samuel, in this text here, we can look back at, uh, excuse me, uh, Exodus 19.15 and Leviticus 15.18, where sexual intercourse was a source of ritual impurity, so it was avoided during a military campaign. Um, so he probably saw, yeah, I know the king wants me and he appreciates me, but this is not the time uh, or the place to do this. And so really Uriah is showing his dedication to God's law and to the ceremonial law set before the Israelites. Yeah, I think of when David is uh, on the run with his 600 men back in 1 Samuel and he approaches the the place to get the— uh, it's when he eats the showbread, he and his men, and he's asked, well, you know, are you guys ritually pure? Have you have you have been with any women? And David's like, you know, of course not, because we're at battle. And, and of course, that's a this is a long time from then. <laughs> his men are at battle. David's not worrying about it. Uriah, as you said, true patriot, being faithful to his men, his conscience is concerning him. And it throws into, uh, I guess it throws into confusion all the plans that David had. Um, and, and just in case people are missing it, explain what David's plan was. <laughs> what is it that he was wanting people to believe? Okay, so he would go down, lay with his wife. He was hoping that uh, Uriah wasn't good at math, <laughs> because this would be eight months, not nine. But okay, but put that aside. And then uh, she could say, well, I I'm pregnant, and here's here's the child. And he's thinking, okay, it's my child. And David's like, okay, whew, I avoided, you know, more problems by just, you know, giving this over to Uriah and letting him think it's his kid. And this shows us that you can't cover up sin with good intentions. You know, Romans chapter six says, you know, Paul says, so do we sin more? So more may grace may abound, you know, basically by no means. It's like, hell no, heaven, yes. You know, God wants us to always look to uh, his commandments, not try to, you know, so-called fight fire with fire, because that's just going to end up in an entangled mess, as we will see here in a few moments. Absolutely. Uriah is camping out, not just outside, but also with David's other servants in the presence of lots of other people. So there is no doubt publicly that anyone can say, oh, yeah, Uriah must have snuck in there to Bathsheba, you know, and as far as the eight months or even seven months, you know, of course they had pre, pre, uh, um, premature births back sure, then too. Sure. So it's like, yeah, I, I think that, uh, David isn't thinking very clearly <laughs> regardless. He's almost panicking. Uh, but then he is surprised, right? He's puzzled by Uriah's behavior. He, he expects him to act like any other man who's been away from his wife for a long time. Um, but you know, there you go. And if you won't well, do it, well, this just shows you how now sin, like leaven, is now starting to, you know, multiply here, grow. Um, this is not the David that we, like you had mentioned earlier, um, in the earlier parts of his uh, kingship. Uh, this is a different David, and we're seeing more and more of that as this uh, narrative goes on. Uh, this also raises up another question because. Um, and I've had this discussion with other pastors. He committed adultery, Leviticus 20, verse 10, and Deuteronomy 22, verse 22. Um, actually, both of them could have been killed here uh, because of the fact that they were in an adulterous relationship. Now, that being said, who's going to take out the king here? Who's going to execute uh, this particular, enforce this particular edict from God? in this case here. But even though he was the king, it didn't mean he was excused from this sort of behavior. Oh, certainly not. But again, who would uh, who would indict a, a sitting reigning king, of course, as we might use in modern parlance? And, and so, you know, you have here um, him doing something wrong, trying to cover it up. I also wonder if Uriah, when he hears these instructions from David, basically permission from the king to go and wash his feet, which is a euphemism to, you know, go and relax and take care of whatever you want to take care of. You know, he, he, I wonder if he thinks this is a trick. And the reason why I say this is because I think it shows a great irony in the situation that David 
who has really not followed his own strict rules for battle, invites the soldier home, expects him to be like him, and then he thinks, well, David is such a strict master and he has all these rules for battle. I'm cert- This is certainly just a test of my willingness. And so it almost fails because David himself has such the reputation of being a strong and, and, and faithful uh, a soldier for God. So I, I almost wonder if it didn't work because of his reputation. His reputation is, is, is preventing him from hiding his sin. Well stated. Absolutely. Well, when we come back from our break, folks, don't go anywhere. We're going to see just how David responds to Uriah's refusal to go back into his house and to his wife. We know he's sending him back, but he's going to send him back with a a letter. Uh, That letter is not going to bode well for Uriah. But don't go anywhere. When we come back, we'll keep on going with 2 Samuel chapter 11. See you on the other side. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. With me this morning is the Reverend Dan Eddy, pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Beloit, Wisconsin. Folks, thanks for joining us this morning. I pray that God's blessing you through our study. Remember that Thy Strong Word can be heard in St. Louis on AM850, but also live or on demand at kfuo.org. And you can take the show with you by listening to us as a podcast either on KFUO's own mobile app or through your favorite podcasting platform. If you have any questions or comments about today's show or just want to send me a hello, that's okay. You can email me at pastorboo at gmail.com. You can also find me on Facebook. Well, Pastor, before the break, we were just getting to the point where, you know, Uriah is sleeping outside. David's plan to cover up his infidelity, his adultery has failed. He's sending him back to the front. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and read uh, the next, uh, probably, uh, we'll just see where I stop, <laughs> beginning with chapter uh, verse 14. Here we go. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, Why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Okay, stopping right there at the end of verse 21. Uh, A couple of things. So David sends a letter, and we know what the letter is. Basically, put this guy right on the front line, make sure he gets killed. But he sends the letter by the hand of Uriah. (laughs) He's assuming that Uriah is not going to read this thing. I I assume that he didn't, but still, that seemed pretty risky. Might have had the king's seal on it, too, Uh, and... Therefore, it would be egregious for him to do that. It would be wrong for him to do that. Uh, I was uh, sharing with one of my lay elder deacons, Mark Peterson, that I was studying this text for this broadcast, and he pointed out something. He said, 
don't shoot the messenger. <laughs> but this time, Joab was to arrange for the messenger in a way to be shot, as it were. So there's just rich irony in, in that. He's um, carrying and, his own death warrant. Yeah, very much, very much. Uh, almost a Christ-like figure, if you think about that, um, you know, with Jesus and how he was given a death sentence when he came to the battlefield of this world. Um, but he knew that he was going to have to die for our sins. This brings up, though, back to Joab for a moment. You've got to wonder what Joab was thinking. He reads this. This is not something that David, I assume, does or has done or normally does. And he's probably thinking, okay, king, why are you killing one of your best warriors? And we know this because Uriah, on David's deathbed, lists him as one of the 30 great warriors during his 40 years of being king. So this isn't some uh, enlisted private here that has uh, come in or drafted private and, and is battling. This is uh, somebody with some skills. And um, so he's probably thinking, why are you killing one of your best warriors? So that would be the virtuous question to ask. Or maybe he's thinking, mm, okay, uh, I'll go along with this. I've scratched the king's back so that later on he owes me. So I don't know which way you take in terms of Joab's role in this. Well, I think it certainly poses an interesting question. I mean, it, it still comes back to, well, really, the king's seal, like you just said. You know, of course it had the king's seal, but, you know, did he sneak a little look into it? Well, he didn't because, as you said, that'd be egregious to, for him to even look. Well, the same applies, I believe, to Joab, right? Joab gets this message from the king, do this, and he has to assume that the king must have a very good reason. Perhaps Uriah has been treasonous. Perhaps Uriah has done something wrong. He could put the best construction on it and still follow the orders of the king. Um, and at the same time, what you say is 100% correct. You know, I now, if, if I'm doing this sort of, if the king trusts me to take out this, you know, surreptitious, secretive mission to get Uriah killed, well, then then surely I have now this special relationship with the king. Or maybe that relationship preceded the fighting. But absolutely, he, he does that. But you see, though, that he seems to be a little, <laughs> I guess, concerned because he the way he does it, he has them fight really close uh, to the wall here, which is probably just a, a bad military maneuver he gives some examples on in the past and so he actually once he does it he's a little worried that david's going to be upset not over uriah's death of course because that's what he ordered but you know without context david might be like why are we losing so many good people with your ridiculous with your ridiculous scheme and, and so he wants him to know that hey listen remember the wink wink mission you gave me well that's why i did it so I, so I do think that's an interesting relationship between the two. He's being proactive, Joab is, in anticipating how the king might react, because now other men have died as a result of this military maneuver. And he even speculates that David might go back to an incident earlier in Israel's history, long before David came on the scene. He's referring to uh, when he uh, brings up, uh, I'm sorry, what was the guy's name here? Abimelech? Yes, thank you. Uh, th this goes back to Judges 8 and 9, here where uh, he, uh, this, how do you say his name? Ab Ab I can't say the name. Ab <laughs> Abimelech. Abimelech. Thank Abimelech. you. Abimelech, yeah. <laughs> Abimelech, Abimelech, something like that. You just got to say it with confidence. That's what there I you do go. if I'm wrong. <laughs> well, anyway, he, he got caught in the battle where a woman uh was going to kill him in battle. She she had been been able to shoot him over the wall, and he told his armor bearer, "Look, kill me. I don't want a woman killing me." So this is what all of that is about. That he brings up near mm -hmm. the in verses uh, twenty twenty one and and following. Right. So you know, he, and he, basically he was in a position to receive that. So why would uh, why would um, why would you do something so foolish? But as you said. It, it, he's it's a contrapuntal. He's expecting David to be upset over it. So he's like, yeah, be sure to tell him Uriah the Hittite specifically is dead, and then he'll know what that means. With this said, though, with all of this, you know, his plan to cover up his adultery moves from trying to make Uriah responsible for it 
to murdering Uriah. But here's my question. How does that solve the king's problem? I mean, does Uriah the only one that has standing to accuse him of adultery? So how does that solve the, the problem? People will, people will now know that not only was Uriah in battle, he died in battle, and yet Bathsheba became pregnant. That could be explained uh, that uh, she maybe got pregnant before he went to battle. Um, but what this does is it sets up David as uh, the savior. Okay, what, what, It's kind of like the people who set a fire and then they end up rescuing people from the fire so they can look mm. like the hero. So here, David, I mean, this just to show you how depraved these actions are. So David um, comes in and says, oh, this poor woman, she lost her husband. I'm going to welcome her into my harem. And oh, isn't that great what the king was doing? Yeah, now that makes sense. That does. That does make sense. So let's let's read some of that, what happens next, starting with verse 22. So the messenger came and went to David and told him all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archer shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead. And your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. So we'll, we'll pause there. So the messenger comes back. He doesn't even wait for the king to get angry. He just goes ahead and makes sure that he knows that Uriah the Hittite is dead. The messenger has no clue why that might pacify David, but he doesn't take any chances with the king getting upset. I, that's, that stood out to me right away. A brilliant. Uh, he learned from Joab. He's probably going back saying, you know, I'm just going to cut to the quick, and I'm going to say, for whatever reason, this Uriah guy is dead. And right. it, it worked because— David didn't dispute anything. He says, well, you know, this is going to happen in war. Um, you know, I'm not mad. Go go back and encourage them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, wow. Exactly. You know, and he gives us this little um, like proverb. Yeah, this little proverb about, you know, the sword will devour, you know, some now, some later, basically. Um, he, he's feigning ignorance of wrongdoing, but this proverb is just like, well, you know what? Sometimes Soldiers die in battle. What are you going? What are you going to do? Um, it's well, it's and think about interesting... how how ironic uh, David is actually, in a way, predicting his own future, mm. because we know after this, the next fifteen years are not pleasant years for David. All right, uh, his son wants to take over the kingdom. You have a half son from one wife rapes the the daughter of another wife, and you know, there's a lot of um, unpleasant things that devours David's family and kingdom here. So these words end up being almost prophetic in, in a roundabout way. Mm, very interesting. Yeah. I mean, well, David as king is does service the role of prophet. So, you know, even if it's ironically going to foreshadow his own um, his own troubles. Well, he does send him to the hottest part of the battle. He does die. And as I asked earlier, you know, how does that solve the king's problem? Well, let's read the last couple of verses of the chapter. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased Yahweh. Uh, just for clarification, because we're on the radio here, when the morning was over, that's M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. That is when she was done mourning, a period of mourning. So seven days. Seven yeah, he days, didn't swoop in there immediately. No. <laughs> but but her lamenting over her husband, I think, is at least somewhat significant. It, it, copy, it, sorry, it, uh, it addresses any of these rumors that she somehow doesn't love her husband and he's off to battle and while he's out there, she's sleeping around and... No, she's lamenting over her husband. Things are things are sad. And she also knows, and as you, you brought up, that without a husband and a baby on the way, life's about to get, from her point of view, really difficult for her. 
So David's the hero. He right. takes her in. I mean, look at how fast sin multiplies here. We go from looking at a naked woman and instead of looking away, indulge in that, not just in the mind, but physically. Then we arrange lying. We get the husband drunk. There's a fifth commandment issued there. Uh, then we have him literally murdered on the battlefield, more fifth commandment. There's lying going on, second commandment. Then the last thing is he steals the man's wife because he's no longer around. So, I mean, what do we got? Commandments two and five and six and seven going on here. And of course, the coveting um, gets the whole kitten caboodle started here when it, because coveting is more of what's going on in the mind. And then, and then how he hatches this, you know, he, satisfying his own pleasure rather than pleasing the Lord. So you can understand why the Lord was displeased with him because David was really pleasing himself. The idea of sin just multiplying, as you've brought out a couple times, I think is extremely, extremely important for us to take away here because. Well, again, as we sort of started at the very beginning of the show talking about, you know, we're not kings of nations, but we certainly are men and women with our own sinful tendencies. And how often do we think, right? Well, you know, just a little sin, God will forgive me. Or even if we don't think that way, we, we fall into these temptations and we're resistant to repent. And there's so many different ways in which we continue to struggle with sin. And we often dismiss it by saying, it's not a bad, it's, 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 not, it's not a big sin, it's not a, a mortal sin, it's just a small little maybe venial <laughs> sin or something like that. You know, maybe we don't talk that way, but that's sort of how we think. And here, as you pointed out, this all begins with him, you know, looking down into someone's courtyard when he really should have averted his eyes. This can be applied to today. Um, unfortunately, pornography in our culture is so rampant uh, with the easy access on the internet. It is being exposed to kids younger and younger, and I think is one of the leavens, if you will, that is really um, polluting the way we look at our roles as men and women in our culture, our roles as husbands and wives, our role of marriage, our this idea of pleasing ourselves, and not really seeing God being displeased with the way that we are doing this. This chapter really is a microcosm of what's going on, what's going wrong in our culture. Uh, when people have adulterous affairs, the justification that they use for having them, the way that they try to cover up, rationalize it, uh, when it leads to divorce, the destruction it causes the children in trying to bring them up to understand God's view of marriage. Uh, certainly, you could argue that, that David's polygamy uh, ends up in the next 15 years really ruining its ugly head. Uh, so there's just so many things here that if we just simply go back and follow God's will, we can avoid all of the pain and suffering that is occurring and will occur in David's life. I think it's really important, as you said, for us to recognize how the small sins that affects us will continue to compound if we don't, you know, we can take those things to Christ. We can receive forgiveness, but not just forgiveness, but here we are in the season of Pentecost when we observe and remember Christ's gift of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead who strengthens us to resist sin, strengthens us to follow God's will. doesn't mean we're going to be perfect, but, but even if David, a man after God's own heart, can fall into such egregious sin, um, you know, then our sins, too, uh, are certainly able to be forgiven by the, the blood of Christ. Because one thing we notice about David, and we're not going to get to it today— but that David, unlike his predecessor Saul, is a uh, is a man who returns to the Lord time and again. Doesn't just continue to revel in his sin, no matter how egregious that sin was. Um, we have David. We have um, him doing these things. We have him going from looking at a woman to killing her husband. Now he's brought her into his house. He's in pride. 
taking uh, all the credit <laughs> as as we talked about for being the savior of her because what is she going to do? You know, her husband is a dead war hero and she has a, a, a child. Well, that child will be born into the king's house and she became his wife and bore him a son. So it's interesting how the scriptures do describe this as bearing him a son. Um, this isn't a second child that she had with him, right? This is the one she was pregnant with, just for clarity. Very much, very much. And here we see that David is going to have to be brought low in order to realize all that he has done. And, you know, spoiler alert, look at Second Samuel 12 and how Nathan, who's probably watching this volleyball match going on, this, this sea of corruption, has to then confront David. And when David is brought low um, and sees the destruction that he has caused, including pronouncing a, a death sentence on himself by decree of the king, uh, how when David is finally at that rock bottom, truly confesses his sins. And there is something in uh, one of our confession formulas, but I am heartily sorry for them. People don't read it closely, and sometimes you you think that they're saying in, in our worship service, but I'm hardly sorry for them, which is what I thought as a kid. Oh, I thought, no. wait a minute, you're confessing your sin and you're hardly sorry for them? No, heartily sorry for them. Well, in order to be heartily sorry, you have to realize the depths of your sin, the ramifications of those sins, what harm they caused others, what how it how it displeased God, um, all of these things, and and when you when you're brought low, then you really understand God's mercy, and we believe that Psalm 51, by its superscription, uh, was written by David after he was forgiven. And what what's the key theme? Have mercy on me, O God according to your unfailing love. I failed, but you didn't fail. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgression. Wash away all my iniquity. Interesting, you know, Bathsheba washing to get rid of uh, the, un, the, the ritual uncleanliness and God really washing away our iniquity and cleansing us from our sin. And you were mentioning there before about the Holy Spirit during Pentecost time, you know, what do we sing many times as an offertory? Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast or a right spirit within me. Don't cast me away from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. See, David had lost all of that. His heart had become impure. Um, and he had casted himself away from God's presence with his sin. And yet God restored him so that he could see true joy, not pleasure with a woman, but joy in his salvation and to sustain his faith. So uh, that's one thing I love about David. He seems to learn from his, his mistakes by embracing God's forgiveness to live a more repentant life. I mean, and I think that is certainly what is on display here and in the next chapter, when you consider the next chapter. I mean, so far, if we just considered our chapter, you wouldn't see that. But, you know, David is really behaving like Saul in this moment. In fact, Saul himself tried to do this very tactic with David, to sending him to fight the Philistines, to collect a hundred foreskins. Um, he wanted David to die. He didn't want a hundred foreskins. He wanted David to die. Uh, but but when Saul got caught way back in 1 Samuel 15, he makes excuses. He begs Samuel to be silent about it. He cared more about what the people thought than what God thought about him. But David will be caught, as you've already alluded to in the next chapter, um, and he'll admit his sin. He'll ask for forgiveness from God. Um, he cares about his relationship with God. And again, we'll talk more about it tomorrow, but you know, we see this in Psalm 51. Um, so give us a little hint of what's coming up tomorrow, brother, when people gather back around the, the radio to hear uh, first, or Second Samuel chapter 12. What's, what's, coming on the, what's coming tomorrow from Nathan? 
Nathan is very wise. Uh, I think it's uh, called the rhetoric of entrapment. So he lures David in and and tells him a story about this poor guy who has a little you and how a rich guy invited his friends over to the house and says, well, I'm not going to take from my own sheep. I'm going to go down to this poor guy and take his little you. And, you know, and David is just getting angry and angrier because because Nathan gets him to lower his defenses. I, I, I assume if Nathan went to him and said, you, you realize you committed adultery and you murdered a guy that, uh, you know, he better duck because David's sword's coming to chop off the guy's head. So Nathan wisely gets him, lures him in, lures him in until finally David said that guy should die. And then Nathan says, you're that guy. And by decree, David is really pronouncing a death sentence on himself, which in a way we do. When, when we commit sins, we are, you know, we, we're not a king where our word stands and is irrevocable, but rather we pronounce a death sentence on us when we commit sin and don't want God's mercy uh, and forgiveness. And so Nathan does a beautiful job of bringing David low, this very powerful, violent man. He's brought to his knees so that he can see his sin. And then David says, I have sinned. And Nathan says, your sin has been removed from you. And so you'll see tomorrow how that all plays out in more detail. But that's kind of the overview of what's going on. Yeah, it'll be fun. Atahish, right? You are the man. We'll talk about it tomorrow. But today, you're the man, brother. Thank you for being my guest uh, to the Reverend Dan Eddy, pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Beloit, Wisconsin. Brother, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Look forward to being on soon. Folks, tomorrow, you've already heard that when we get together again tomorrow, that Nathan the prophet is going to um, approach David and call him to repentance in that, uh, in that entrapping way, as our guest just said. We're also going to see that the son that is born to Bathsheba is going to pass. And also, um, Solomon will be born. So there's a couple big things going on in the text tomorrow, so join us to find out about them until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray. Father, keep us in thy strong words.